Well, let's turn together to Nehemiah chapter 11. Nehemiah 11, and while you're finding that, let's just uh, have a brief word of prayer. Our Father, this morning, or this evening rather, uh, as we come to a somewhat obscure passage in the Old Testament, we trust you that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. And as we'll see tonight in Nehemiah 11 and 12, that holds true yet again. And so we're excited tonight, Lord, to see what truths you have for us, but I pray you would open our minds to learn, our hearts to receive, our souls to be thrilled, and our, our lives, Lord, to be changed and to be more conformed to the glory of Christ, more conformed to His likeness. And so this evening, Lord, we pray that you would make us that much more like Christ, that you would make us more obedient, that you would change us more and more into His image through this text. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. We're in Nehemiah 11, but I want to talk to you just briefly about the book of Isaiah, and then we'll come back to it a little bit later on. The book of Isaiah is just a, a glorious book, and we've spent a lot of time in Isaiah. It's one of my favorites, you can probably tell. And very clearly, the book of Isaiah repeats itself in its prediction that God would exile his people for their covenant unfaithfulness and in its prediction that he would also bring them home from exile. Isaiah chapter 40 turns from the hard and difficult judgment chapters of 1 through 39 and suddenly begins, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. And the rest of chapter 40 explains that discipline is complete and that God's grace will shine once again upon his people and that they will come home. And as we've seen in Ezra and Nehemiah, the return from exile of the few ten thousands, tens of thousands of Jews beginning 70 years after the first carrying away of the southern kingdom of Judah in 605 BC, this return does in fact fulfill this promise from God. And yet all along we've seen that it's not really close to the full glory which Israel enjoyed under King David and then under Solomon as well, kind of the heyday of Israel. And so we're always left a little wanting. We're left wanting just a, a little bit more. And tonight's text is no different. And in fact, as you are glancing over in Nehemiah 11, you're seeing all of these names, and it comes off as fairly mundane. Just a bunch of lists of people. One scholar wrote this, There is little prospect of Nehemiah 11 becoming one of the Old Testament's most famous or best-loved chapters. The modern reader does not find long lists of difficult Hebrew names very interesting. Some of them are very difficult, and I was telling my daughter Julia this, and she began pronouncing one wrong all the way here tonight, just to try to mess me up. So we have a small bet going. I won't tell you which one it is, because I probably will mess it up. But we don't find this super interesting, do we? We sort of scan through this quickly. And so I, I think the most effective way to approach this text um, tonight we're taking on all of chapter 11 and chapter 12 verses 1 through 26. I think the most effective thing we can do is just walk through some of the highlights. But like every text of the Bible, there will be some rich applications for us. So tonight, this is as simple as it gets. First, I want to show you the story. And second, I want to show you the significance. So the story and the significance. And we'll spend some time on the story. And the story can be divided into two smaller parts. Part one, which is chapter 11, we could call the repopulation of Jerusalem. 
the repopulation of Jerusalem. Now, you, you recall that the walls and the gates of Jerusalem have been completed. The temple is, is complete. God has helped the descendants of the exiles with the annoying, surrounding, threatening peoples all around them. In chapters 8, 9, and 10, the people have gathered together. They've heard the law of God three times. They've confessed their sins. They have contemplated their sin. They've covenanted with God even in writing to reaffirm their covenant loyalty to God and to His law. And that brings us to Nehemiah 11, verse 1. And the officials of the people lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine-tenths remained in the other cities. And the people blessed all the men who freely offered to live in Jerusalem. Now these are the heads of the provinces who lived in Jerusalem, but in the cities of Judah each lived in his own possession in their cities, the Israelites, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the sons of Solomon's servants. Now to get the proper context for this, remember that chapters 8, 9, and 10 constitute about a month of spiritual renewal, of revival, so to speak. But situationally, Jerusalem hasn't been settled yet. And in fact, this harkens back to chapter 7, and you might flip back a couple of pages to the beginning of chapter 7, because this is really where we're picking up where chapter 7 leaves off. Chapter 7, verse 4, speaking of Jerusalem, now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart, and I gathered the nobles, the officials, and the people to be recorded by genealogies. Then I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up first, and in it I found written. And then we have this long list in chapter 7, which corresponds to the lists in chapter 11. They're essentially the same. The officials, back in chapter 11, verse 1, the rulers, they already lived in Jerusalem, but the people cast lots. So that one out of every ten men and their families would live in Jerusalem according to the will of God. That was, that was the way they were going to discover God's will. They cast lots and they received this. In fact, verse 2 says, The people blessed all the men who freely offered to live in Jerusalem. Why did all the people bless them, the ones that, that went along with this? Well, the inhabiting of Jerusalem was primarily to defend the city. That was the point of being there. These men who freely offered to take what the, the casting of the lots um, said for them, it meant that these were the first to deal with any attack on Jerusalem, so they're essentially volunteering to be the very first line of defense from all the peoples around them that were not friendly with Israel. Beginning in verse 4, it lists some of the descendants of the tribe of Judah and of the tribe of Benjamin who would live in and guard the city. And, and you begin to get... An idea that this is a list of important people, of Jewish royalty, so to speak. Because in particular, we see an emphasis on Judah, the sons of Judah. Judah was the son of Jacob. He is the chosen line of Christ. He'd been recognized by Jacob as the legal firstborn because of the sins of his older brothers, Simeon and Levi. You know that story. Judah had three sons. God killed two of them because they were wicked men and left one. Shelah. Then you recall Judah's sin in going to his widowed daughter-in-law Tamar who had dressed up as a prostitute in order to bear children in Judah's line and in, in many ways she's more righteous than Judah because she cared about continuing the chosen line but her method was of course ungodly and the result of their union was twins Perez and Zerah 
or Zerah. So now the important family of Judah had three families or three clans, that of Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. Verse 4 lists the descendants of Perez from the sons of Judah, Athiah, the son of Uzziah, the son of Zechariah, the son of Amariah, the son of Shephatiah, the son of Mahalalel, from the sons of Perez. Verse 5 says, near the end, the son of Zechariah, the son of the Shilonite. Shilonite almost certainly ought to be Shelonite, the Shelonite or the Shelonite, and many old uh, versions, early texts of the Old Testament have this, descendants of Shelah. And what about the clan of Zerah? All the way in verse 24, we have Pethahiah, the son of Meshazabel, of the sons of Zerah. And Pethahiah is the king's representative, some sort of liaison between the people of Israel and the king of Persia. And he's descended from Zerah. So Judah is the chosen line of Jacob, Nehemiah makes certain to mention that this line has been well-preserved, it's been well-represented. And then we get to the sons of Benjamin, beginning in verse 7. And they get prominence because Benjaminite men are placed in command of Jerusalem. Verse 9, Joel, the son of Zikri, was their overseer, and Judah, the son of Hesanuah, was second in command of the city. This is important because technically speaking, Judah was within the boundaries of the territory of Benjamin. So the Benjaminites get to be in charge of Jerusalem. Ironically, the descendants of the very youngest son of Jacob. Now this will become important later, but notice the command structure. There's not a supreme ruler, but a commander and a second in command. Somewhat of a simple checks and balances system. And we'll come back to that in a bit. Now, beginning in verse 10, we get to the list of priests and their relatives who would, who would live in Jerusalem. And I just want to point out one little detail in verse 14. This is the priests and their relatives, mighty men of valor, 128. Why would the priests need mighty men of valor? Well, they were part of the volunteer force to protect Jerusalem. And the rest of verse 14 says, And their overseer was Zabdiel, the son of Hagedolim. Who is the son of Hagedolim? Hagedolim isn't really a proper name. It's a nickname. Hagedolim is a plural noun which means son of all the great ones. In other words, Zabdiel the priest was the commander of the priestly volunteer force because he was the biggest and the baddest and the strongest of all of the priests, of all of the clergy. Put it this way, Zabdiel was the David Papillon of the clergy in Jerusalem. There it is, David. You can relax now. He was the big priest. He was the guy that goes, you know, he's a great priest, but I like him with a sword also. And in fact, going all the way back up to verse 6, all the descendants of Perez are called 200, or 468 valiant men. Same reason, protection. So there's hundreds and hundreds of soldiers protecting Jerusalem, protecting the temple, protecting the city as a whole. In verses 15 through 18, Nehemiah gives the list of the Levites, the support staff for temple worship. And I'd highlight two men in verse 17, Madaniah, who was the chief in beginning the thanksgiving and prayer, and Bakbukiah, the second among his relatives. I win the bet, Julia. <laughs> Both were descended from the psalmist Asaph, and they're in charge of the temple singers. And now, beginning in verse 19, 172 gatekeepers and their families 
this is important. These are the, the very first line of defense. If somebody's going to attack, they're the first ones to die. They're the first ones to take spears. They're the first ones to hold off the enemy. The very first line of defense. Then Nehemiah makes a summary statement about everyone else. In verse 20, the rest of Israel, of the priests and of the Levites, were in all the cities of Judah, each on his own inheritance. And from verse 25 through 35, Nehemiah lists all the very specific villages and all the towns that those descended from Judah lived in, those descended from Benjamin lived in. And as per the law, verse 36, the Levites were spread out amongst them as their duty was to serve all the other tribes. So that's part one of the story contained in chapter 11, the repopulation of Jerusalem. Part two is contained in chapter 12, verses 1 through 26. And this is the priests and the exiles after, or the priests and the Levites rather, after exile. The priests and Levites after exile. Chapter 12 is somewhat of a review. It reviews the priests and the Levites who came originally with Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest at the time of the original return. So we're going back in time a little bit here. The priests and his descendants are listed in verses 1 through 7. And then the Levites are listed again in verses 8 and 9, noting again the musical leadership of Madaniah and Bakbukiah, who were over the songs of thanksgiving in verse 8. Interesting little note here. Verse 9 says that Bakbukiah and his brothers stood opposite Opposite whom? Madaniah and his brothers in keeping their responsibilities. What does that mean they stood opposite? Well, to translate that, there were two choirs of Levites, large choirs. One med, led by Madaniah, the other by Bakbukiah. Why two choirs? Well, coming up in the next section of chapter 12, which we'll cover next week, is the dedication and the celebration of the wall of Jerusalem. In verse 31 and following records, Two great choirs getting on top of the walls to sing toward one another in antiphonal song, by the way, accompanied by a huge orchestra as well. So these are the two choir leaders, Madaniah and Bakbukiah, lead the two massive choirs. And then in chapter 12, beginning in verse 10, we get the details of the unbroken succession of high priests, beginning with Joshua, men of God from Joshua down several generations. And there's there's a couple of detailed challenges with this list in that at least one name is left out of the genealogy in verse 10, which was not uncommon, and another name added in the same genealogy in verse 22. And if this is a detail that, that is important to you, this is easily explained by the fact that two of the men listed, Jonathan and Johanan, are brothers, both sons of Joy, uh, Joy Ada. And so if you're interested in those details, that's how you resolve that issue. But the main point of that list of the high priests and their descendants is to show just how seriously Israel is now finally taking the priesthood in general and the high priesthood in particular. That the current high priest, Eliashib, in Nehemiah's day was the legitimate religious leader of the priests and that they have paid careful attention to this. And to drive this point home all the way, the, the heads of the priestly households are listed in detail in verses 13 through 21, showing that the priestly leadership has remained unbroken for 90 years since the original return. And then the final portion of this section gives a list 
gives a breakdown of the heads of the Levite households. Lots of names are repeated, but they make this list because they're clan leaders. They're the larger level leaders. But even in this list, again, once again, we get a musical reference. Chapter 12, verse 24, the heads of the Levites were Hashabiah, Sherebiah, and Jeshua, the son of Cadmiel, with their brothers opposite them, to praise and give thanks, and this is interesting, by the commandment of David, the man of God, watch by watch. King David, many hundreds of years earlier, gave the original commands to form the musical core, the choirs and the orchestras, to give praise unto God. And this is an interesting little phrase here, watch by watch. The singers were to sing in shifts. That the singing of praise to God was a regular event, perhaps even daily, for all the people to hear. So God is reforming a holy temple in a holy city with now holy people, which was to be devoted to His praise every single day. Can you imagine walking down the streets of Jerusalem and hearing every day choirs and orchestras just singing and magnifying the praises of God as a normal course of events. What a glorious day that would be, knowing that God had brought at least a remnant of His people home. Now that's the story, but what's the significance? These chapters might seem mundane, but there's much we can glean from this, and I want to just give you some principles that I think will be helpful to us. And they bridge the gap from the time of Ezra and Nehemiah to our time Quite easily, I think. Several principles, and then I want to take us in one last direction for a bit of time. First principle, it was holy people that made the city holy. It was holy people that made the city holy. In Nehemiah 11.1, the officials of the people lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city. Nehemiah 11.18, all the Levites in the holy city were 284. Why is it a holy city? Well, chapter 11, the story of Jerusalem now becoming fully occupied. This only comes after Nehemiah chapter 8, Nehemiah chapter 9, Nehemiah chapter 10. The reading of the law, the reading of the law a second time, the reading of the law a third time, the conviction of the people, the tears and weeping and repentance of the people, the confession of the people, the prayer of the people, the covenant affirmation of the people. In other words, Nehemiah 7, 4, and 5 says the city was empty and needed to be occupied, and it takes all of 8, 9, and 10 to consecrate and sanctify a people worthy to make that city holy. They had to be outfitted. They had to be consecrated to inhabit God's holy city. And you notice throughout that we highlighted the guardians of the city, the men of valor and the valiant men. They were tasked with keeping the city safe. And that was a wise thing to do. And that's something that they ought to have done. And they were well prepared. Many, many hundreds of men ready to fight. But what... It was the best safeguard for the city. The best safeguard for the city was their holiness and their covenant loyalty to God because what got them in trouble in the first place? What got them sent into exile? What got them conquered by other peoples? It was their wayward sinfulness. And so the, the important way to guard the city is not with the swords and the spears of the mighty men of valor, but with the holy lives of the men and the women and the children 
living within the city and all around. This is exactly the same in the church. What is the greatest safeguard for the church? The greatest safeguard for the church is holiness. It is our set-apartness, our differentness. Not being relevant. Who cares about being relevant? Not trying to please the world and certainly not trying to be like the world. That's just throwing the doors open to spiritual danger is all that does. The spiritual safety of the church depends on her holiness. And that's an important concept. I think very often a lost concept. The safety of the church depends on the willingness and the delight of the church's members to walk in a worthy manner of the gospel of Christ. That's how we're kept safe, as it were. And I don't mean safe from persecution. We're not promised that. I don't mean safe from uh, all kinds of difficulties. I mean spiritually safe, spiritually pure, spiritually undefiled. The best defense for the church against the deceptions of the world is the holiness of her people. That has never changed. There's a second principle we could find from chapters 11 and 12. Holy people live sacrificial lives. Holy people live sacrificial lives. That is part of being a believer in God, a believer in Christ. You notice at the beginning of chapter 11 that one of ten of the men were taken by lot to inhabit Jerusalem, to be the guardians, to be the first responders to trouble. This is very much connected to the end of chapter 10. In the end of chapter 10, we see uh, the principle of the tithe. We see this in verse 37. We will also bring the first of our dough, our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the new wine and the oil to the priests at the chambers of the house of our God and the tithe, the tenth of our ground to the Levites. For the Levites are they who, who receive the tithes in all the towns where we serve. Now they're not just tithing of this list here, our dough, our contributions, the fruit of every tree, new wine and oil and so forth. They're tithing of themselves. They are sacrificing themselves. And what they're showing is that the true giving heart of the true worshiper of God is not just giving external things. It's giving yourself. That's what true giving is. In fact, the Apostle Paul outlines this exact principle. He gave the churches at Macedonia as an example of the highest giving. He praised them because they first gave themselves to the Lord. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 3, he says, For I testify that according to their ability, beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. This happens to do with, with the collection for Jerusalem that Paul was taking. Begging us with much urging for the grace of sharing in the ministry to the saints. This is phenomenal. This is like somebody here raising their hand at the end of the service and saying, could we please pass the offering bags one more time? Begging us to help. And this, not as we had expected, but this is the key, but they gave first themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Why were they so generous? Why were they begging Paul to be part of this uh, this contribution to Jerusalem because first they gave themselves. They were exactly in the spirit of Romans 12. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a what? Sacrifice. Living, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Holy people live sacrificial lives. So another principle we could glean from these two chapters And that is that worship music retells 
the truths of Scripture. Worship music retells the truth of Scripture. You noticed as we went through this, quite an emphasis on music worship with these lists of people. And there's that interesting mention of King David. But here's a little trivia fact here. David is not referred to as the king. He's referred to, in fact, much more as a prophet. Chapter 12, verse 24, David is described as the man of God. That is a a, a technical term for a prophet, somebody who receives revelation from God. Was David the prophet? You can only have to read the Psalms to find out that the answer to that is yes. 1224, David is described as the man of God. And then if we peek ahead a little bit, 1236, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. 1237, the city of David and the house of David. 1245, the responsibilities of gatekeepers and singers according to the commandment of David. 1246, in the days of David, there were chiefs of singers, songs of praise and hymns of thanksgiving to God. In other words, all of the references to David refer to his role as a prophet, a man of God, a receiver of revelation in connection to music worship. And this happened six times. In fact, the most overt reference to David as prophet of God in relation to the music worship of God anywhere in the Bible is found in 2 Chronicles 29.25. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to this connection. David as a prophet Then he caused the Levites to stand in the house of Yahweh with cymbals, with harps, and with lyres, according to the command of David and of Gad the king's seer and of Nathan the prophet, for the command was from Yahweh by the hand of his prophets. Which prophets? David, Gad, and Nathan. The connection is clear, and the lesson is even clearer for us in the church, worship music is vitally connected to truth. That's what worship music is. Just because music is played inside a church building doesn't make it worship music. It must be connected clearly to truth. And this, this emphasis is obvious. Holy people in a holy city must sing holy songs. And holy songs are only holy as much as they accurately ref- represent the revealed Word of God. That is a clear, clear principle that we hold to, that we, are, we consider precious today in the church as well. Let me give you a fourth principle. Permanent holiness is only possible through Christ. Permanent holiness is only possible through Christ. It took all of chapters 8, 9, and 10, all of them long chapters, to purify God's people through the Word of God, massive conviction of sin, confession of sin, contemplation of sin, prayer, signing a covenant loyalty statement. But we all know that it cannot last, and it's not going to last. That while in the days following and in chapters 11 and 12, we see a tremendous time of spiritual preparation, that they are a purified people, that purity is always temporary and always degrades it always spirals down why because the the core problem here hasn't been addressed yet they need a substitutionary sacrifice for sin they need a man to die in their place who has never sinned one time and can offer his perfect life in exchange for their sinful lives a man who can receive the wages of sin which is death 
to pay the eternal penalty for every sin. And of course, this man, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully human, would also have to conquer death so that all who believe on Him can follow Him in resurrection. And so as long as these people are in unglorified bodies, in the time prior to the new covenant, spiritual renewal was never going to last. It was never going to last. Even this glorious inhabiting of Jerusalem, a a genuine true victory, is not the coming kingdom of Messiah. It is not the coming of the new covenant glory. In fact, there's a couple of major clues in these two chapters which pointedly veer the reader away from ever mistaking this event as the final culmination of all of God's promises to restore Israel. Here's the first clue. Going back to the six mentions of David, he's never listed as a king. Not one time. The only mention of a king is in chapter 12 and it has to do with the king of Persia. The, the chapters go to a, to a lot of lengths to say there is no king in Israel. In clue number two, along the same lines, you never see a supreme leader in this time after the exile. Even Nehemiah the governor is never listed as a supreme leader at all. He's a go-between. And in three different cases in the two chapters we just walked through, God makes certain to let you, the reader, know that there is no king. And that the best they can do in the absence of a perfect, benevolent king is to have a system of checks and balances, multiple leaders. Chapter 12, verse 1, Zerubbabel and Joshua are listed as the leaders. Chapter 12, verse 26, Ezra and Nehemiah are listed as the leaders. In both chapters 11 and 12, you have Madaniah and Bakbukiah are the co-leaders of the musicians. And then just a little bonus here also, the leaders of Jerusalem have a leader and a second in command. It's always two. It's always more than one. There's no supreme leader. There is no king. And so the leadership does the best it can with a plurality of leaders That is the best form of spiritual leadership until we have a gloriously benevolent, perfect monarch ruling the world. Now I said at the beginning that the book of Isaiah was clearly and repeatedly predicting over and over again that God would exile his people for their covenant unfaithfulness and Isaiah predicts that God would bring them home as well. And that Isaiah 40 turns from the hard and difficult judgment chapters of 1 through 39 and Begins with comfort, O comfort my people, says your God, that discipline is now complete. God's grace has returned and will shine once again on his people and they will come home. But Nehemiah 11 and 12 present a problem. Yes, God has purified the people to inhabit his holy city. And overall, Nehemiah 11 and 12 are very happy chapters. They're very very joyful chapters in theme and content. But the problem is, is it won't last. God's people have been purified for now. And all you have to do is continue on in history to see how quickly this degrades. The Israelites are back, but they're still under Persian rule. And there's no Israelite king, certainly no Davidic king at all. They would be under Persian rule until around 331 B.C., Alexander the Great conquered the Persian Empire over a period of a decade. He took control of the region of Judea in 331. And he continued his cultural work of trying to unify his empire by spreading Hellenism, Greek culture and the Greek language. 
Hellenism spread like wildfire throughout all the Jewish communities with Greek becoming the preferred language, although Hebrew and Aramaic still continued among locals. There was a continual tension among different groups of Jews now concerned with the weakening of Jewish tradition, the Jewish identity through Hellenism and and various factions and groups began to form. And this cultural rift continued for centuries, going all the way into the church age. We see in Acts chapter 6, a difficulty between the Hellenists and the Jews in the church. After the death of Alexander the Great in 323 BC, his generals divided his empire among themselves, and these became dynasties in various lands in the empire. The, The Ptolemies in Egypt and the Seleucids in the Syrian Mesopotamian area ruled all the people in Judea because Judea was caught right on the border between those two territories. It seems like all throughout history, Israel's right on the border between two fighting powers. The Ptolemies in Egypt ruled Judea first, and they they really allowed total religious freedom. They allowed a measure of political autonomy. But the closeness of the Seleucids up here in the Syrian Mesopotamian area caused all kinds of infighting among the Jews. Jews were taking sides because they were trying to figure out who was going to end up on top. Was it going to be the Ptolemies or the Seleucids? In 198 BC, the Seleucids took control of Judea and they tightened down religious restrictions big time, much more than the Ptolemies ever had. And now tensions began to rise between Jews and the Hellenistic rulers and within the Jewish community itself. When Antiochus Epiphanes came to the throne of the Seleucids, those tensions mounted quickly. In 175 BC, he raised taxes in Judea to fund his failing campaigns, military campaigns down in in Egypt. And the man named Jason, a Hellenized Jew, he bribed Antiochus into making him high priest in Israel. There were no spiritual qualifications. He just had money. Just three years later, the high priest position went to another Hellenized Jew, Menelius. And this partnership led to Antiochus collaborating with Jewish sympathizers. Are you ready for this? To convert the temple of God into a pagan shrine. Around 167 B.C., a priest from outside Jerusalem who was faithful to the Lord, Mattathias, together with his five sons, led a revolt against the rule of Antiochus Epiphanes. They used quick sneak attacks on key cities and villages. Their whole point was just to restore religious freedom. The revolt continued under one of Mattathias' sons, Judas. Judas was given the nickname Maccabeus, or Maccabee, which just means the hammer. He was a military man. And they did take control of Jerusalem again. Maccabeus' followers rather purified and rededicated the temple in Jerusalem. That particular event is still commemorated at Hanukkah. That's what Hanukkah is about. Well, this revolt started as a fight for religious freedom, but it turned into all-out war for total independence. Control went back and forth, back and forth, with a long series of bloody battles and the change in the power over a period of, of a decade or so. Israel basically became like an Afghanistan or an Iraq where there's just constant fighting, constant war. Eventually, the Seleucids regained control when Jonathan, one of Maccabeus' brothers, made a deal with the Seleucids saying, I'll be the high priest in Jerusalem, but you let us be free. And so there was a measure of freedom again, enjoyed as they were under the Persians, but now they're still under the thumb of just another empire. They're still not independent. 
Because this was so out of the ordinary and, and not in line at all with Mosaic law, everything that was happening during all of this time, various religious factions began to develop. You had the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes. The Essenes said, we're getting out of here, and they moved to the wilderness, and the Essenes are the ones that produced the Dead Sea Scrolls for us. But political instability continued until the Jews appointed Simon, who was the last living of the five brothers of Maccabeus, or the four other brothers of Maccabeus. Simon became ruler and high priest, Simon pushed for total independence of Israel and after winning a battle against the major Hellenized Jewish communities in the area around 141 BC, for the first time in about six centuries, Israel was independent of all other nations for 72 months. That was it. Simon's son-in-law had Simon assassinated. Simon's son, John Hyrcanus became high priest, but he immediately made a deal with the Seleucids who were trying to recapture all the lands that Israel had gotten back. He said, I'll pay tribute to you as long as we're independent, which means we're not really independent. This pseudo-peace lasted for about 20 years, and Hyrcanus was able to take back a lot of original Israelite territory, which you're very familiar with in the New Testament. He annexed Idumea in the south, where Herod would come from, he acquired the provinces of Samaria, just north of Judea, and Galilee, just north of Samaria. In the centuries earlier, the Samaritans, Jews mixed with other peoples, had built their own temple at Mount Gerizim. Hyrcanus destroyed it, and that marked the final break, the final division between Samaritans and Jews, which lasted all the way into the days of Christ. Well, in 104 B.C., Hyrcanus died, he left control to his son Aristobulus. He ruled only a year, but for the first time ever since the return from the exile, a leader took the title of king of Israel. And just a little note here, and this will make sense to you now, all the rulers of these past decades had been both priests and rulers, and now a priest and a king. You see that even in their, in their turmoil, Israel is, is craving, they're longing for one ruler who is both priest and king. Well, eventually, under Aristobulus, or right after Aristobulus, a massive civil war broke out for control. And during that civil war, the whole area was weakened politically, and it led the way to the Romans stepping in and intervening. They took control of Judea, Samaria, Galilee, and using puppet kings and rulers in Israel, Rome continued in power, not like the Persians right after the exile who ruled from a long distance away, from many hundreds of miles away. No, the, the Romans had a visible presence with Roman garrisons, Roman governors, Roman soldiers. They literally built a fort right in the city of Jerusalem. Which, of course, takes us to the time of the birth of Christ. Now, what's the whole point of that little history lesson? The whole point is, is that the glorious days of Nehemiah 11 and 12, not only were not really that glorious, they didn't last. And for 400 years, there was growing turmoil, never true independence, and certainly never a legitimate king. And so that begs the question, were the prophecies in Isaiah of Israel's return and restoration fully consummated with Ezra and Nehemiah? We've seen repeatedly in Ezra and Nehemiah that they were not. But Isaiah goes further than just the example, the preview of God's coming kingdom, which is what we've seen in Nehemiah 11 and 12. 
God promises a true king. He promises a Messiah in Jerusalem. Isaiah 24, 23, Then the moon will be humiliated and the sun ashamed, for Yahweh of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and His glory will be before His elders. You remember how God insisted that Jerusalem be a holy city? Well, speaking of a future day when Jerusalem is truly free under the reign of Messiah, Isaiah 52.1 says, Awake, awake, clothe yourself in your strength, O Zion. Clothe yourself in your glorious garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come into you. They will be clean. What will the reputation of Jerusalem be worldwide? Isaiah 62, 12, and they will call them the holy people, the redeemed of Yahweh, and you will be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. And listen, all of that is just in the millennial kingdom. All of that is just during the reign of Christ, that those who refuse to worship God will not be allowed in. It will be truly a holy city. And in fact, taking it an era further into the final state, into the eternal state of New Jerusalem, Revelation 21, 27 says of the city, and nothing defiled and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The holy city will be holy and it will remain holy for all eternity. And remember the songs of thanksgiving that were to be carried out, that you could walk through the city at least for a brief period of time and hear the singers and the, and the orchestra members playing to the glory of God. And that, that went away so quickly when the temple system got corrupted. But when Christ returns, Isaiah 51.3 says, Indeed, Yahweh will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places and her wilderness. He will make like Eden and her desert like the garden of Yahweh. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and sound of a melody that the singing will return. And what about the gatekeepers, the watchmen who watched out for enemies? Isaiah pictures the watchman of Jerusalem now seeing someone else coming on the horizon. Isaiah 52, 8, the voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voices, they shout joyfully together, for they will see with their own eyes when Yahweh returns to Zion. And Isaiah 62, 11 says, Behold, Yahweh has announced to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him there are those that still would say those particularly who believe that the kingdom of christ is happening right now in this era they would say that all of the restoration promises of israel already happened they happened at the exile or after the exile we get another giant clue in nehemiah 11 and 12 that the full restoration is yet to come and it's a clue right in front of our faces that this return from exile and now the reestablishment of the inhabiting of Jerusalem is just a preview, it's just a foretaste, it's just a model. And to, to go into this clue that's right in front of our faces, we need a quick history reminder. Hundreds of years earlier, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, couldn't hold the kingdom together. And just 24 months or so into his reign, the kingdom split into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The southern kingdom of Judah consisted only of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, 
with some Levites staying to serve in the temple. The northern kingdom of Israel consisted of the ten other tribes. So what happened to the tribes of Reuben and Simeon and Issachar and Zebulun and Manasseh and Ephraim, the the half-tribes of the sons of Joseph, and Naphtali and Gad and Asher and Dan, what happened to them? The northern kingdom very quickly abandoned the true faith in Yahweh for idol worship, and in 722 B.C. they're absorbed by the Assyrians. And then, in the conquest of the southern kingdom of Judah by Babylon in the 6th century, the ones carried off and the ones who returned were only of the tribes of Judah, Benjamin, and Levi. And that's all we see in Nehemiah 11 and 12. In all those lists, we see Judah and Benjamin and Levi. And there's a, there's a gap, there's a hole, there's a sadness where you, you, would, you want to ask, what about the other brothers? What about those ten Were the other ten tribes just lost to history? Well, Isaiah tells a bigger story, at least by inference. Isaiah 43, 5, Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your seed from the east, and I will gather you from the west, from multiple places. Isaiah 49, 6, God says, Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes, plural, of Jacob, and to cause the preserved ones of Israel to return? Isaiah 40, verse 11, Like a shepherd, he will shepherd his flock in his arm. He will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Isaiah 54, 7, For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you, plural, Isaiah 35.10 And the ransomed of Yahweh will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion with everlasting gladness upon their heads. They, plural, will attain delight and gladness and sorrow and sighing will flee away. And you might say, but that doesn't say that the other ten are brought back. It does infer it. What about the other tribes? Turn forward in your Old Testament to Ezekiel chapter 47. Just for a moment and then we'll be done. Ezekiel 47. Now Ezekiel 40 through 48 is the glorious description of the millennial kingdom. A a very, very detailed description of the new temple that will be in Jerusalem during the reign of Christ. Uh, A description of all the lands and the boundaries of the land in Israel. A description of, of the leadership Ezekiel 47, 13, during this time in the millennium, Ezekiel 47, 13, thus says Lord Yahweh, this shall be the boundary by which you shall apportion the land for an inheritance among the 12 tribes of Israel. Turn to Ezekiel 48, right near the end of the chapter. This is a description of the city of Jerusalem. Ezekiel 48, verse 31. And the gates of the city shall be named for the tribes of Israel. Three gates toward the north. The gate of Reuben, one. The gate of Judah, one. The gate of Levi, one. And on the east side, 4,500 cubits shall be three gates. The gate of Joseph, one. The gate of Benjamin, one. The gate of Dan, one. And on the south side, 4,500 cubits by measurement shall be three gates. The gate of Simeon one, the gate of Issachar one, the gate of Zebulun one. On the west side, 4,500 cubits shall be three gates. The gate of Gad one, the gate of Asher one, the gate of Naphtali one. 
The city shall be 18,000 cubits round about, and the name of the city from that day shall be Yahweh is there. When God makes promises, He keeps every one of them. He keeps every one of them. And by the time you as the reader get to this point in Ezra Nehemiah, knowing how brief the success of chapters 11 and 12 is, how it's going to crumble in history, it leaves you aching for this glorious city, aching for a glorious king, aching for a holy city, for relief from century after century after century of turmoil and trouble. And that ache, that desire, that yearning, that longing makes the very last words of Jesus Christ in all of the Bible so sweet, so inviting. The very last words of Jesus. He says, yes, I am coming quickly. Those are good words for us. So Ezra Nehemiah leaves us with a big, oh, but we need more. Well, the more is found at the end of the Bible and at the end of redemptive history. Yes, I am coming quickly. And that's our great hope. Let's pray together. Our Father, how glorious it is to be given this heavenly yearning, this longing for you. And as we have read through Ezra and Nehemiah, we have seen that you have been perfectly faithful to all your promises to restore your people. And that gives us great hope that your promises to your people in the church age, that the Lord Jesus Christ himself said he would not let one be snatched out of his hand, nor would one be snatched out of his father's hand that to all who believe on the name of Christ, our eternal destiny is secured. That also gives us faith to believe that because God has kept so many promises to Israel and in preview form in Ezra and Nehemiah and in full form in the coming years ahead of us, we have great hope and we have great certainty that when our Savior says, yes, I am coming quickly, that we may believe Him and we may pray along with the very last prayer of the Bible, come Lord Jesus. We look forward to a day when our Savior is King upon this earth, King of all the kings, the Lord of all the lords, and righteousness reigns in the holy city of Jerusalem and every city on this earth is made holy because there are holy people in it. We look forward to that day. In the meantime, Father, help us to be holy people among the unholy. Help us to be those set apart among the lost. Help us to be those that proclaim the gospel while there is yet time. That today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And so we pray, Lord, that we would be faithful, holy people until that day when you make the entire earth holy unto your name. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.